Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today, we're joined by James Berger, partner with Jaw Law Group and head of their global enforcement practice group. So James, why don't you begin by just sharing a little bit of your background. Today, we're going to be talking about cross-border commerce for US and Chinese companies. We're in a period of heightened regulation. So why don't you give us a little background on what your experience has been in this space? First of all, Emily, it's uh, great to be here with you today. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and address your audience about what I certainly believe is an incredibly topical and important set of issues. I mean, that's namely the growing conflicts between the U.S. and China and global instability and how that affects the practice of law. So the way I ended up here at Jaw Law Group, we're a mid-sized firm with offices in uh, New York. Uh, California and Beijing. And our focus is really on helping our clients navigate these difficult times. And if necessary, obviously, zealously advocate for them as well. How I came into it specifically is having a background that involved not only um, nearly 20 years of practicing law, but also extensive experience in the areas of politics, foreign affairs, and public relations. And so what I found is that it's in fact those other areas that in many ways really inform what I do to help our clients in this uh, surreal world in which we're now living, sometimes more even than my legal knowledge. So let's start with the current state of cross-border commerce for U.S. and Chinese companies operating in either country. Can you help us understand the current landscape? Certainly, Emily. I think it's safe to say what we're looking at could be described as a perfect storm. This would be made up of five primary components, rhetoric from both sides, uh, which is always unhelpful and tends to build upon itself and worsen tensions. New types of regulation, regulatory agencies here in the United States that have very legitimate purposes but are instead being effectively weaponized and used as instruments in the ongoing trade war. Then, of course, all the traditional aspects of the trade war itself, tariffs, monetary policy, et cetera, cultural misunderstanding on both sides. And then finally, of course, the fact that we're entering uh, what's arguably the most contentious election season, uh, certainly in my lifetime. And possibly since the Civil War here in the United States. So all of those issues put together have really fueled what we're seeing when it comes to the degree of mistrust between the United States government and the Chinese government, as well as the way in which the landscape has been altered to make things more difficult and indeed sometimes downright frightening for companies that are simply trying to transact with each other across the Pacific. And so how is that, how are these factors manifesting themselves for these companies trying to have transactions? I'll give you a couple specific examples. There's a fascinating one that I was just reading about recently involving a company called Juniper Networks. 
And what made that especially interesting as a case is that Juniper had operations in both China and Russia. It's a software company. They deployed uh, sales teams in both places. They actually had a fairly robust compliance system in place. Nevertheless, these sales teams on various occasions went rogue and engaged in conduct contrary to U.S. law, in this instance specifically the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, by providing what the government would refer to as things of value to government officials in exchange for sales opportunities. Now, the CEO of the company and senior management had no idea that the sales teams were engaged in these violations. As I noted, they did have a compliance system. They, in fact, had had trainings for their employees, but the folks over at the Justice Department working through FinCEN decided that that wasn't sufficient. So not only was intentionality not required, not only was a willful blindness standard not applied, in fact, it was an almost arbitrary application of FCPA based on whatever the government decided actual regulation should be. And the result was an $11.7 million fine for the company, as well as various bans, making it far harder for them to do international business. So the message of that one is really not knowing certainly isn't a defense in the current climate. Mm -hmm. And what was it that they pointed to for justification or reasoning for the the fine or the sentence that he received? So I think there's two important points to address here. So one is that the government found that the company Juniper, even though they had a compliance program, that it was insufficiently robust. Second, that there is a duty that has been given to FinCEN that it did not have up until uh, just this past August, which goes well beyond what we would normally think of as financial regulations. And specifically, it involves any activities they believe might be connected to proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, rogue state actors, transnational organized crime, international narcotics trafficking, and terrorism. And One would wonder, well, how does a small company like Juniper be involved in any of that? And the government's reply was that because they were operating, in this case, again, in China and in Russia, that they were, one, dealing with nations that the U.S., at least to some extent, views as rogue states or adversarial states, And that secondly, by engaging in their violations of FCPA, they were by definition facilitating bad acts by these foreign governments in a way that endangered U.S. national security. Let's circle back to how we got here and provide a little bit more background on some of those policy changes that you've been referring to. I mean, you've mentioned some, but can you tell us more about developments with FinCEN and also the China Initiative? Certainly. I think we really can go back even a little bit further, which is to Inauguration Day in 2017. We have seen something virtually unprecedented, and that is a 91% drop in net direct investment by China in the United States. There are really only two historical parallels to that that I've been able to find. One would be German investment in the United States directly prior to World War II. 
and Iranian investment in the United States during and after the 1979 Islamic Revolution. So when we talk about this being significant, that's absolutely not an overstatement. Secondly, in terms of the more specific changes that have happened, so one, we all have read about and know about the trade war that's been going on between the United States and China. In certain instances, are legitimate reasons for that. In others, less so. But what most people are not so aware of is the way that the regulatory agencies in our country have been changed from having a fundamental purpose of regulating to instead becoming effectively agents of that trade war. One of the reasons that happened is because of an announcement in 2018 by then Attorney General Jeff Sessions of something he referred to as the China Initiative. The goal of the China Initiative is effectively to shift resources that would otherwise be going toward regulation of countries traditionally associated with corruption to Saudi Arabia, Russia, Pakistan, numerous other countries in the Middle East, Bangladesh, Mexico, Brazil, et cetera, and shift not only the majority of the funding for that regulation to China, but also the personnel. When asked why that was justified, FBI Director Ray said at the same press conference with Attorney General Sessions, quote, no country presents a broader, more severe threat to our ideas our innovation, and our economic security than China. Now, certainly China in some manner does present a long-term geopolitical threat to the United States. I don't want to diminish that reality in any way. And obviously uh, the Chinese feel similarly about the role of the U.S. in the Pacific, as has been evidenced by conflicts about the South China Sea, for example. So it's not to say that the countries don't have differences with each other. But a statement like that from Director Ray is the type of inflammatory rhetoric I mentioned earlier, which, because it's then met immediately by a very similar statement from China's foreign minister, and everything begins to spiral. So when you, again, combine these various factors of the China initiative, these new, these regulatory agencies being used in new ways to wage the trade war, and increased levels of misunderstanding, the pressures in the United States that are being imposed by the electoral cycle, as well as pressures in China that President Xi Jinping is facing in terms of competing factions within the Communist Party, as well as the People's Liberation Army. Uh, again, this is the perfect storm I mentioned and why it's made conditions for so many companies on both sides, far more difficult than they've been previously. It's not shocking in some sense that we have seen a 90% drop in investment. But on the other hand, it's very important for everyone and it's in everyone's best interest who believes that commerce is preferable to conflict, that we figure out a way of the morass into which we've wandered. Right. So as we've established, the current climate is intimidating, but you're still encouraging the cross-border operations and commerce as opposed to pulling back in response. So what should practitioners working in this space focus on to be successful during this time of heightened regulation and political tension? Emily, the way I think about this is that the practice of law in this environment 
has taken on inherently necessary and new characteristics. So it's no longer sufficient if you're advising either a Chinese company doing business here in the United States or a U.S. company doing business in China to simply provide them zealous advocacy in the traditional legal sense. You also, to do your duty as an attorney, as a, their advisor, you have to be providing intelligent and informed political counsel. You have to approach whatever task it is you're attempting to accomplish, whether that be of a transactional nature, of a trade negotiation nature, if it's a litigated matter, you have to do so in a culturally appropriate manner. I mean, I'll highlight one aspect of that, which is again, FCPA. Within the United States, what we view as bribery, giving a gift, for example, to a government official or to a company with one with whom one is doing business, that in the United States would be considered bribery if you were to ask most people, especially if you were doing it as sort of a quid pro quo. In China, on the other hand, not only are many of those actions normal and considered entirely appropriate, they're in certain instances virtually required from a cultural perspective. They're seen not as bribes, but as ways of establishing trust and respect. So if you're going to institute an effective FCPA compliance program with regard to your China operations, you have to first figure out how to talk to your Chinese counterpart in a way that doesn't start off your business relationship by effectively accusing them of being a criminal. One of the things we've done here at Jia Law Group is said, look, we want to provide a service to our Chinese colleagues and clients. And that service is to help you access the benefits of the U.S. market, to help you be able to complete whatever the particular transaction is in the most beneficial possible manner, but also to help you avoid the potentially negative consequences of a law like FCPI. And so by placing it in terms of something where we're helping them to gain a benefit as opposed to taking a more chauvinistic attitude in which we're imposing American values, we found that actually achieving compliance and getting our Chinese counterparts involved in the process, getting them to ask questions and demonstrate a real concern for these issues is far easier. So I think that's something very important for practitioners to do. Another area that I think is similar involves the PR aspect of this that has not always been present in all aspects of law. One's public image during these types of transactions, and certainly when one's involved in an actual litigated contest, is more important here than ever, not just because of the different ways these matters will be viewed in the Chinese press versus the various parts of the U.S. press, not only because of the 24-7 or post-24-7 news cycle and exploding dissemination of information throughout the blogosphere and social media, but also because governments are watching on both sides. And so they're going to be much more likely to pursue an investigation or regulatory enforcement action against a company that they think has an image, true or not, of being corrupt. So being aware of PR has become more important for lawyers than ever. And it's not really something that can just be outsourced to a traditional PR firm. 
it has to be done by the attorneys who fully understand all the facts on the ground, know who the parties are, and can effectively build a strategy that balances PR with their legal obligations to their clients. So, Emily, I think the final point that I would make here applies equally to the management of law firms that are doing business in this cross-border sector, as well as to the advice that they give their clients, senior executives, and teams on the ground. And that is that one of the best proactive measures to be taken is to constantly be informed that we live at a time when these events and changes are not taking place weekly. They're not taking place daily. These are literally often hourly changes, sometimes changes by the minute. Watch any of the cable shows and you'll see how they're constantly being forced to adjust the scope of what they're discussing. So for clients, that's you know, obviously essential to really create a culture in which their people are using multiple sources of information, reading quality papers, Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Washington Post, the South China Morning Post, and so on. Knowing about local media, knowing about what the media in China is saying. For example, if you're a, if you're a US company, also setting up Google Alert, just getting breaking news, literally the second it breaks and being ready to deal with it appropriately. So after all, if you're not informed, not only are you going to be unable to provide the type of regulatory advice, driving, or political counsel, or cultural counsel, or create PR strategies, or crisis management plans, but you're also not really going to be able to zealously advocate for your client in the way that term is thought of as in a traditional legal sense. An additional useful resource is actually going to these various regulatory agencies themselves, that is to their websites. So FinCEN, for example, does a very good job of announcing new regulatory changes and providing guidance. The same is true with SEC, which publishes FCPA compliance manuals that are updated regularly. Obviously, the American Bar Association has great resources. So depending on the nature of the deal, transaction, litigation, whatever it is that you're working on from a cross-border perspective, looking at the relevant agencies and then looking at what other people are saying about those agencies is a great way of managing crises before they actually become crises. Well, that's certainly a lot of information for our listeners to digest, and I'm sure there's more we could cover just before we close, is there any final thoughts you have that you think practitioners should bear in mind as they navigate the space? There is one more point that I think is important. I began this interview by describing the current situation as a perfect storm. And what I meant by that is that, yes, there are a lot of new developments that have taken place that do make the conduct of business across the Pacific more challenging than it has previously been. But our message to our clients here at Jaw Law Group is not that they should stop interacting with each other, not that they should be frightened, but rather that by taking the types of proactive steps I mentioned, that it's still very possible to realize a wealth of opportunity by engaging rather than simply going elsewhere or retreating into an isolationist stance. 
That is not at all my message here today. It's that if you approach the practice of law and the approach of advising your clients differently and within this new context, there is vast success to be found. And certainly those opportunities should not be missed. Well, thank you again for your time today, James. We appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.